Hey everybody, welcome back to Meta Perspective. And today we are honored with a guest, uh, Muho Nuelki. Uh, so, so welcome, Muho. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm really glad you can make it. And and just for people listening, I I know I'm, I'm not great with names. So how do you pronounce your name properly? Well, Muho is Muho. Uh, that's the name I got in Japan when I ordained as a Zen monk. And uh, Nölke is my family name from Germany. So you can either spell that with an O or an O with two points, this kind of uh, metal way of putting two points over the O, or you can have an OE. So probably you pronounced it O Nolki. No, how did how did you pronounce it? Well, I'm not sure, but but I mean, in <laughs> yeah. German it would be Nolki, and it's not really important anyway. Yeah, uh, you know, so I'm really glad to have you on. And part of uh, why I asked to have you on is is actually came across your work very recently um, because of a, a book that you helped translate called "To You: The Zen Sayings of uh, Kodo Sawaki." Um, and, and for people listening. Um, can you give them a little background on? Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's it's actually. I, I <laughs> That's it. Exactly. I, I love the cover. Um, and uh, can can you tell people a little bit about Kodo Sawaki? Um. Yeah, Kodo Sawaki. He. I think he was born in 1818 or around that time. He died in uh, 1965. So he died uh, three years before I was born. I never met him, obviously. Um. Sometimes he's described as a kind of a Zen rebel. He was kind of an outsider, although in his time he was also quite popular in um, the way that, well, when we talk about Zen in the West, uh, we think about sitting practice. But when you talk about Buddhism in Japan, including Zen, people usually think about funerals. Uh, when you die, you call a priest and the priest will do the funeral. Um, so at the time of Sawaki, that means about 100 years ago, a lot of uh, both monks and also people in the secular world had forgotten about meditation. They thought that Buddhism means to pray for the deceased. Um, so Sawaki was somebody who said, well, uh, let's cut the crap and sit. And another thing that was popular at Sawaki's time was people were rediscovering meditation, but what a lot of people said, and that's probably also true in the West, um, there must be a reason why people have been meditating for 2,500 years, and that's to gain enlightenment, just as the Buddha did. We don't know exactly what he gained when we when he gained this enlightenment, but there must have been some big thing. Uh, maybe it was like an LSD trip or maybe whatever. We don't know what it was, but it sounds interesting. In the Japanese, they have this word Satori. That must be it. For example, what was uh, really popular at the time, also in the West, is D.T. Suzuki. And D.T. Suzuki writes about it all the time. There's this Satori experience. You can't express it in words, but uh, when you sit and maybe you contemplate some koans, these riddles, you might get it if you train with an enlightened teacher. 
And Sawaki said, uh, no, Zazen is good for nothing. That's one of the famous uh, phrases in this book. What is Zazen good for? It's good for nothing. And unless you practice with this attitude, it's going to really be good for nothing. And a lot of people are surprised when they hear that for the first time. How can it be good for nothing? And why should I practice it if it's good for <laughs> yeah. nothing? All I do, I do because it's good for th something. I work for the money. Um, I go to the bar, so in the hope that I meet a beautiful girl. And when I meditate, I don't do it for nothing. I want something for my money. If I pay good money for my retreat, I want some enlightenment experience, or at least I want a clearer mind. I want to be relaxed. I practice mindfulness so that I work more efficiently, whatever. And for Savaki, it's exactly this attitude that I want something, I want something that makes us um, just like uh, donkeys that chase a carrot. And he says, uh, Zazen means stopping to chase the carrot. Just sit, just sit, quit the game, so to speak. You were chasing money, you were chasing girls, and now you're chasing enlightenment experiences. But the difference isn't so big. It's not so big. So stop chasing, just sit. So that's uh, basically uh, Sawaki, and uh, he also used to be the abbot of Antaiji, where I trained later. Um, he has some uh, important students in the West, in Europe, it was Deshimaru in America. Now you have Okumula Shohaku, but also uh, Shunyu Suzuki, who was in San Francisco. He's not a direct student of Sawaki, but he's also connected to Sawaki. Um, Katagiri. Katagiri in Minneapolis was connected to Sawaki. So Sawaki had a quite big influence on Zen in the West. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I actually was introduced to Zen, um, you know, some years ago through the Shunryo Suzuki book. And, uh, I, you know, that's such a great book, The Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yes. Um, but I, I'm not, you know, you'll, you'll certainly know better than me. Um, the shikantaza the just yes. sitting approach was was that something that was um really emphasized by koto Sawaki? for sure i mean he's not the first one who came up with the idea that would be dogen uh dogen said we don't practice to get enlightenment but the practice of just sitting is a manifestation of enlightenment so the two go together one example that he gives it's like fanning um the moment you fan, there's going to be air, but the moment you stop, there's no, uh, uh, well, the air is there, but you don't have the breeze. So fanning means to be in the breeze, stopping to fan, uh, there's no breeze anymore. So for Dogen, practice and enlightenment are one. Um, while we usually have the idea, I practice now to get my enlightenment tomorrow. And once I have my enlightenment tomorrow, I don't have to practice anymore. Why should I? That would be stupid. And people who have that view, they usually come with the metaphor of you cross a river, you need a boat for that. But once you've reached the other shore, you don't need the boat anymore. Why would you be attached to sitting practice? While for Dogen, when we use this metaphor, it's basically that you discover nirvana in the boat. You discover that rowing the boat means to attain nirvana. It's not that you reach the other shore and then you got nirvana, but 
you thought you were in samsara and you thought I need to get into nirvana, but then you discover when you row the boat and you do just that, just sitting in this case, you just sit here and now. And you realize I was never separated from nirvana. It was always here. And, and, um, Sawaki, he, Koto Sawaki was influenced by Dogen. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, in Zen, you got two big schools in Japan, Rinzai Soto. Soto was founded by Dogen and Sawaki belongs into that school. And Rinzai is a little bit different in the respect. They use koans and koans are tools that can help you to get enlightenment experiences. So a Rinzai teacher would probably be more inclined to say, no, Zazen is not good for nothing. Or maybe it's good for nothing if you don't use koans and you just waste your time. Uh, <laughs> but if you have a right teacher and you use the right tools, it's going to get you to certain experiences. Although I have the feeling that even in Rinzai, basically you make a, a big round, you have these experience, but you also return to this point where actually you, was good for nothing it's just that you have to take this circle or it might be might be easier to it's not really easier but it's, it's safer to take the circle and because what can happen in soto people tell you in the beginning it's so then it's supposed to be good for nothing and you sit on the cushion and it hurts and it's boring, it's frustrating, but your teacher told you it's good for nothing. So you tell yourself, okay, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. But then what can happen in Soto is after two, three, four, five years, you're still not sure. So you're always in this state of good for nothingness, but you're never really grounded in there. So, um, the, the Rinzai approach also has part of the truth. And yes, you, you also, it's good if you make some experiences that then basically they, they, they lead you back to right here and now. But then you don't have this, uh, how do you say, it's, it's like being in a relation with a girl, sometimes in Soto, you're in a relation with girl, the girl is a Zen, but you always think about that other girl. <laughs> but you know you're not supposed to think of her so you say okay I i'm fine with her and and we don't get so well with each other but that other girl also it's, it's it wouldn't be good so so i don't think of this other girl and rinzai in that respect is you date a lot of girls and then you find that actually being being solo is the best thing in a way yeah and um you know, just actually, since since we're touching on the subject, mm. um, the the actual in in the two you um, Zen sayings of Kodosawaki in the the epilogue, um, the, it touches on that subject of you know what happens if you're you're dissatisfied with Zazen, mm. and um, can you explain who that was written by and or said by, and um, the significance of that chapter? Um, that chapter was not in the original version of uh, To You. So it's, it's a translation of a Japanese book that came out 30 years ago. Um, 
that epilogue that you talk about uh, is by Uchiyama Roshi. It's a disciple of Sawaki Roshi. And he compiled all these sayings. And he wrote that chapter for a different book, but I found that that chapter is so important, essential, that I included it in this book. Uh, what he's basically addressing is this feeling that some of us, I think many of us, have even after years of practice that there's still something missing. Okay, I've been sitting for all these years and now I can sit in full lotus and I can sit for half an hour, maybe a full hour without moving. And I've studied the Shobo Genzo and I know certain things about Buddhism, but that can't be all. Maybe I, after all, need this enlightenment experience. Maybe there's still something missing. And while Uchiyama in the epilogue uh, writes about this feeling and how he himself felt like that a lot of times, but uh, then he also explains using the teaching of his teacher Sawaki, but also Dogen, uh, who lived 800 years ago, um, to yeah explain how to work with that and also what I just said that uh, enlightenment is not different from practice. So he used the metaphor of breathing. Uh, when we think about how often we have to breathe in and out during our lifetime, it uh, might feel really tiring. Um, you breathe in and out several times a minute and it would be millions and billions of times until you die. So. Uh, somebody might think I want to take a really, really deep breath now and then stop breathing for the rest of my life. <laughs> and Uchiyama says, that's like this idea. I want my experience now and forever. And then I don't have to practice anymore. Um, while Uchiyama says our daily practice is just like breathing. It's maybe not especially satisfying, <laughs> but I mean, why should it be satisfying? It's, it's this idea that, oh, but I need to get something for sure. I want my, so to speak, uh, one big breath, one big breath that's going to fill my lungs and then I can stop breathing. Mm, but that's not how it works, at least not in Soto Zen. You breathe in, you breathe out, and then you do the next breath. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, actually, you know, talking about the circle, I want to circle back now and uh, just discuss, you know, like how how did you find Soto Zen and, and Kodosawaki and your journey kind of or path uh, around? How did I find my path? You mind yeah. in, you, you mean in retrospect or? How did I get into the thing in the first yeah, place? Yeah. Yes. Um, I was first uh, invited to join a Zen class when I was 16. I was living in a boarding school and one of the teachers there, uh, he was into Zen and he invited all the students to come. And at the time, uh, an Indian guru called Rajinish, or later he called himself Osho. He was really big in Germany. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. And I think it was just at the time when he moved to Oregon 
and there were these problems in Oregon, and there were also these rumors about all the Rolls Royce uh, he had. <laughs> so in my mind, uh, meditation, it sounded suspicious. So, so I had seen these pictures of Rajinish, and I heard about these transcendental meditation guys who could levitate. And in my mind, it was something that I didn't really want to have anything to do with. So I said, no, thank you. And two or weeks, two or three weeks later, because nobody came to the meditation classes, that a teacher went around the boarding school again and invited everybody uh, to try. And I said, uh, after he came for a second time, it sounded like a cult to me or like a, a sect. Like, yeah. So I said, no, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, I'm really not into this. And so he asked me, have you ever tried? And I said, of course not. And I don't plan to try it ever. So then my teacher said, well, if you don't try once, how can you say you're not into it? Try it once and then tell me if you want to come a second time or if you don't want, you can quit. So I went there for one time only in my mind with the idea of stopping. But then it was not so bad. It was different than I'd expected. One thing that um, I found interesting or that surprised me until that age, until I was 16, if you had asked me, where are you? Who are you? I would have pointed to my head and said, well, the guy who is seeing the world from here and who is thinking up here, that's me. And I never thought of that part below my neck of myself. I thought, well, if I have an accident and you could bring my brain to a hospital and attach it to a robot, and then the robot does all the work of my body, it wouldn't really make much of, of a difference as long as this part here is intact. That's me. So what uh, surprised me is that when I sit in this posture, when I sit straight and still for even only 15 minutes, say, it makes a difference. I don't know why, but somehow when my posture changes, I change the world changes. And that surprised me because in class, in, in school, I was usually sitting like this or was sitting like that. And sometimes my teachers would say, hey boy, uh, you should do something about your posture. And I would always say, well, why do you care about how I sit as long as I listen uh, to class and I have good points in the tests at the end of the year? Why would you be worried and um, so it never occurred to me that my posture would change hmm, the way i feel about myself or would change the way i see the world but that was exactly the case although it was not a miraculous change but for example for the first time in 16 years i was aware of my breath uh, i'd been breathing of course all my life but i wasn't aware of it and and now Mm. This is big surprise. How come that something so close, like my breath, that slipped my attention or the sounds of the birds outside of the window? So I decided to come a second time, a third time. After one year, I was the only one who had come each time. And after one year, this, uh, this, uh, the teacher left the school and asked me if I could or I would maybe continue with that Zazen circle. I was now responsible for organizing the room and for uh, looking at the clock and hitting the bell and stuff like that. 
And that's uh, at age 17 when I started to read books about Buddhism and Zen, DT Suzuki and stuff like that. And I also came across the story of that uh, young Indian prince who lived 2,500 years ago, but decided that he didn't want to become the king as his parents had expected. Uh, because he said that life is suffering famously. And a lot of us, to a lot of us in the West, that sounds so negative. Because, of course, I mean, life can be depressing sometimes, but then it's also beautiful other times. And why would you say that life is suffering? But the point of the Buddha was, um, in the end, um, it's just always this feeling of unsatisfactoriness. It's not that you're always in, in pain. It's not that you're always in deep suffering, but there's always something missing. Exactly what, what uh, Uchiyama writes in this epilogue here. There's always this feeling, but there could be something more. There could be a little bit more luxury in my life, a little bit more beautiful girls, uh, a little bit more happiness, whatever. But what happens is you grow older, you're not happy about that, you get sick, you're not happy about that, eventually you die, and you're certainly not happy about that either. And that also goes for a king. So he decided to leave the palace and meditate under, tree, under a tree. And I found that cool at the time, because um, in my case, when I was seven, I lost my mother. My mother was uh, 37 when she died of cancer. So at that early age, when I was still in elementary school, I asked myself, if we all have to die, why would I do homework now? What's the meaning of doing homework? And my father says, well, if you don't do homework, you don't get good grades and you won't get to uh, the next grade in school. Uh, and my question to that is so who cares why would i want to get good grades and my father says so that eventually you can go to university but why do i have to go to university so that you can get a good job uh, but when i see how my father leaves home every morning to go to his job he doesn't look especially happy about that so i asked my father why do you need a job and my father says well to earn money of course why do you have to earn money so to, that I can feed you, boy? <laughs> and but the, the question is still, but uh, as my mother died, you're going to die, I'm going to die, uh, everybody's going to die. What's the reason? What's the meaning of the game? Um, and when I asked my father, what's the meaning of life in the first place? He made a funny face and said, well, uh, you have to ask the teachers in school. But when I asked the teachers in, the, in elementary school, they said it's too early uh, to discuss <laughs> that. Wait until you're in high school and we're going to teach you in high school. But the feeling that the teachers don't know uh, so well either. And when I uh, told my friends in school what I was thinking, they said, well, you're, you're, you're a little bit funny. Let's play soccer. Uh, we never thought about questions like that. So when with 17, I read those books about Buddhism, I, for the first time, I found somebody who had the feeling, oh, that guy actually thought about the same problems, had the same questions that I had, and he invested in his life in solving them. And that happened 
to be Zazen. So when I was 16, I had no idea that that could be actually connected to this essential question that I had. But then with 17, I discovered, oh, it's not only about posture and about feeling good and about uh, being aware of the breath, but there's also connected to these existential questions. So as I had nothing else in life that I was especially interested in doing, no job or whatever I wanted to have in the future, um, very soon I thought I'm going to become a Zen monk in Japan because especially the books by D.T. Suzuki were popular. So Buddhism, for me, it was Zen. And I studied uh, Japanese at university to prepare myself. And then in 1990, uh, 31 years ago, I came to Kyoto for a year. And that's where I met Okumura Shohaku or Shohaku Okumura, the Western way, who is now a teacher in Indiana. At the time, he was living close to Kyoto. I went to the weekly, not weekly, but monthly session. Session is five days sitting in a row from morning to night uh, without even, well, taking showers. Um, so I did this monthly session and then I heard about Antaiji, a monastery uh, where Sawaki Roshi used to be the abbot that used to be located in Kyoto, but it had moved to the northern coast, uh, north of Kyoto. And I went there through the introduction of uh, Shoaku Okumura and the first thing the abbot there told me when I arrived as a 22-year-old, 20, um, he asked me, well, why have you come to Antaiji? And I said, uh, to learn something about Buddhism. And the abbot said, uh, this is not a school. You create Antaiji. And that impressed me a lot. You create Antaiji. How can a 22-year-old who doesn't really speak Japanese properly, who doesn't know really anything much about Zen create Antaiji. But uh, that was a big motivation for me in the beginning. Oh, it's about me. It's not about getting some knowledge uh, from the teacher or from the older monks. It's about my practice, what I do here. And eventually I became a monk there. I ordained, uh, I got the name Muho before I was Olaf. From Olaf, uh, I changed to Muho. And in Zen, it's not only about sitting, for example, it's about work. Antaiji is self-sufficient, so there's a lot about lots, lots of work in the fields. We grow our own rice. Uh, trees have to be felled for uh, wood for cooking. And also the cooking practice in the kitchen is important. Um, but I, in the beginning, was really bad at cooking in a way that's enjoyable for Japanese uh, people. Uh, for example, the udon noodles. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with udon noodles. So the first day I cooked them kind of spaghetti al dente style. <laughs> and yeah. the Japanese complained that they were too hard. Uh, so the next day I decided to make them really soft. So I cooked them for 30 minutes, but then they had dissolved. And again, uh, I was criticized for that. And at one point I said, well, actually, I haven't come to Antaiji to learn about cooking. I'm here to practice Zen. And when uh, the abbot, my teacher, heard that, he said, it's not about you. You don't count at all. 
And that's not unusual in a Zen monastery that people tell you it's not about you. It's about you know, giving up yourself and throwing yourself into each little thing. But uh, when I heard that from my teacher at first, I thought, well, how can that be? A couple of years ago, you said you create Antaiji and now you tell me it's not about me. How can these two things go together? Either it's about me, I create Antaiji, but then I have to be important. Um, or it's not about me, but then how can I create Antaiji? And for me, that was a kind of koan that I worked with these eight years that I studied under my teacher. It's, it's all about me in a way that it's my practice and I create my own worlds the way I live, the way I use my senses and uh, the attitude I have in life. On the other hand, it's not about me at all. It's not about this player in the game. So an expression I recently use a lot is you have to quit the game. You have to have a position outside of the game and then you join the game again, but you play with different rules. It's not about your points anymore, but in Buddhism, we would say it's about living as a bodhisattva. You join the game, but you play in a way that makes it enjoyable for everyone. It's not about you that needs to win. Um, but, well, my teacher didn't talk about well, the game and uh, quitting the game, <laughs> joining the game. He just said, you create Antaisi and you don't count at all. And then at age uh, 31 or so, in uh, Soto, you say Shiho, so you get Dharma transmission. Your teacher uh, says, well, maybe it's time for you to leave and stand on your own feet. And you can go back to Germany, uh, found your own center there if you want to. Uh, but I decided to stay in Japan for a while, um, maybe go to a big city and start a Zen group there. I was thinking Tokyo, Osaka. But then I realized uh, rent is high in the big cities, um, but there were a lot of homeless people living in the park. And when I saw that, I thought I can do that too. Uh, I can live here for free, uh, set up my tent in a park and start to sit uh, every morning at 6 a.m. in front of the tent. At first I was sitting there alone, but then I went to an internet cafe. It was 2001 and I just discovered about the internet. Yeah. And I set up my own homepage and invited people to join me. And then eventually people started to come and sit with me early mornings in the park. But then uh, the following year in February 2002, my uh, teacher died in an accident uh, in Antaiji. There's lots of snow there in the winter and he was trying to clear the road of the snow with a bulldozer and he had an accident with the bulldozer died. And I was called back to Antaiji. Um, first, uh, my older Dharma brothers told me, well, please take care of the temple until spring and then we decide who's going to be the next teacher but it turned out that nobody really wanted to become the next teacher there so i ended up uh, with the job and that was 20 years ago exactly so i did that job for almost 20 years until i retired uh, formally last year so there's uh, none that practiced with me for the last 10 years in Antaiji and 
now she's responsible for the monastery and I'm back in Osaka now. And I don't live in the park anymore, but I weekly on Sundays, I still sit outside. And that's basically, well, my way, how I got into this practice and why I'm here now in this room yeah. in Osaka. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And, um, you know, that that's going to kind of loop back around again into you know how did how did this book come about that that you helped put together and translate um yeah i'm looking around here for the original i usually have the original sitting around with me um this is kind of a similar version i mean there, there's the original japanese version that i discovered in the library of antaiji when i was still 20 324 25 and uh, although it's in japanese uh, all of these quotes are, are very short like for the 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 first ones are quite famous uh, for example in english you can't even trade a single fart with the next guy <laughs> each and every one of us has to live out his own life so they're all short like this so um each day I was kind of in the beginning using a dictionary, um, translating one or two for myself. And usually they gave me a lot of help. Um, some of them I had already heard in Europe because I was training in a Sangha, in a dojo that belonged to the Deshimaru traditions. Tradition. So through the Deshimaru tradition in Europe, I had heard of Sawaki, but then I discovered these sayings in the Japanese original. First for myself, uh, I translated them little by little. And then after I left Antaiji and lived in the park in Osaka, I had a lot of time. So uh, I did that more, more seriously. And when I started with the homepage, I uploaded it to the homepage. First in German, so um, first in German, and there was a German publisher who was interested in that. So the book that now came out in English actually came out in German already almost 20 years ago and was pretty popular in German. So I started with an English translation and then there was an American guy who lived in Switzerland at the time who's now uh, living in Japan. Jesse Ray Hoahash is his name. He wrote me that he had also started his English translation. So we decided to do it together. And it took us a long time, um, more than a decade now, uh, because uh, Jesse, my partner in crime, so to speak, he's kind of a perfectionist. Um, I probably would have uh, thrown it out 10 years ago or so when it was maybe 80%, 70% quality but jesse wanted to do it well so it took us a lot of time but i'm i'm really happy that it's out now and i hope that it's gonna find some readers because at least for me each of these quotes quotes is really gold i mean it's especially if you're into zen practice and even maybe if you're not into zen practice i think some of these quotes really hit the nail on the head yeah, and that's, I guess, one thing about Kotosawaki is his, I mean, he's uh, kind of impactful. It's probably, it's like almost like 
I know if you look at him as like a kind of like a spiritual teacher, you, you hear some of the things he says and you're like, whoa, <laughs> it's like um, very blunt, very direct, yes. just straight cut the crap and straight to the point. Um, I, th- I, th- I think I believe you or somebody else described it as like very spicy yes. uh, attitude. Um, so for, for people, say people are interested and they get the book. Um is there is there a way you'd recommend how people use the book? How to use the book? Right. I, or you I, know some ideas on yeah. I mean, you can can read it from from uh, cover to cover one by one, but then there's uh, thirty four chapters, and all of these uh, chapters got uh, a title by the Japanese editor, and I think the the titles are also quite well. So. One can also, in the being, just skip through the titles of the chapters and just start uh, wherever you think that it's addressing you. For example, to you who would like to leave your rivals in the dust, or to you who are sobbing because somebody put one over on you, Uh, to you who are impressed by scientific and cultural progress, to you who wants to begin with the Zen. Probably some people are more interested in one thing than the other. So, I mean, you don't, it, it's not like a, a philosophical treatise where you have to read each of the chapters in, in order. You can start right at the, at the end. Or if you have this feeling, I've been practicing for years now, but I still have the feeling that something is missing, then you should st- start with the epilogue by Uchiyama that might be the right thing for you. But you can also start with a fart, fart story in the beginning. It's <laughs> also funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I do want to also get into um, Zen practice. And you're, you know, from the Soto yes. uh, lineage, um, which is also, again, you know, Dogen, very Dogen heavy. Um, for, for people just, in, they're just, maybe they come across the book or they, they're just hearing about Zen, um, you know, should, what do you, how would you advise they go forward on that? On Zen practice. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, how should they go about, um, you know, mm. if, if they're just hearing about Zen? Mm. like practicing finding a teacher a lot of people including myself recommend uh, finding a teacher recommend finding a group um and of course you could ask why why can i not just practice in my own uh, bedroom and of course you can uh, but it gives you a lot of motivation strength if you have a group uh, if you have a teacher to whom you can ask questions when they arise. It can also be um, very helpful when it doesn't happen too often. But you sit in your bedroom really seriously for several weeks, a month, and maybe you have something, an experience that feels like enlightenment. Uh, doesn't happen too often, but it can happen. And it's very good to have a teacher to tell you let go of that too 
don't get too attached to that. That happens from time to time, but don't get too excited. Get back on the cushion. If you don't have that teacher, you start to get really full of yourself. Maybe you start to preach. You call yourself a Zen master. And there has been a small number, but there has been examples of these people who probably had some kind of experience, but then they get very ex uh, attached to that, my enlightenment experience. So uh, it's also helpful to have a teacher to take that away from you when you have the thought, I grasp something there. It's good to have a teacher to take that away from you. But also, I mean, just when it comes to the sitting posture, um, it's not too difficult to explain that. But when you really sit, you don't see your posture. But if you sit in a group, uh, then people can help you check that posture. And can if you can't sit in full lotus or half lotus, it's not a problem. But eventually, uh, you might get some advice what you can do so that if you can, over the weeks, months, years, can sit in a better posture. So I would certainly recommend... Uh, getting in touch with some teacher, uh, ideally not only online, but also meet that person in real life. Uh, if you cannot live close to a Zen center, at least visit it several times a year, uh, go to meditation retreats. Um, but of course, there's also lots of input yet that you can get online, but it will never replace a face-to-face -face, uh, connection with a teacher. So in Zen, um, that face-to-face -face connection with a teacher is really important. And I would certainly recommend that if people are serious about sitting, uh, they don't just learn it uh, from the books only and don't learn it from the internet only, but also mm, in real life, find like-minded people. Yeah, and I, I'm, you kind of went over a little, but uh, Kurosawaki, how, how did he... Um, talk about Satori. How did he talk about Satori? I mean, uh, what he says in this book is don't be uh, too attached about it. Now, there's some people who might have some experience and, and they they carry it around with them almost like a tattoo, like, like here, I'm enlightened. They have this yeah. kind of Satori tattoo and everybody needs to know about their Satori. Uh, this experience I had three years ago when I did this really hard retreat. Um, and I mean, that's not what we call Satori. That's the biggest illusion you can have. I mean, Satori, if you want to use the word, means to let go, let go, let go. It's not something you can carry around with you. You can show around. It means to let go. So I think you find that also in this book. He says somewhere to win means to be in illusion. To lose means Satori. Satori means to lose. Whenever you think you gain something, now I got it. That's another illusion. So it's just the opposite of our usual mindset. Usually we sit with the idea, I want to gain Satori. And Sawaki would say, no, you have to let go. And once you lose something, that's Satori. Once you lose. Yeah. You have to lose, lose, lose. And the more you lose, the closer you get to that, what you could call Satori. Satori means to let go. Yeah, and, and the... No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, 
and the moment you let go um usually all of us when we do zazen we do it because we want to do zazen we expect something from that we invest our energy and time into the practice so who's doing zazen here i'm doing zazen it's my practice but then at one point you have to realize no you don't do zazen you cannot do zazen zazen is doing zazen zazen is doing zazen and that's you could say satori when you let go of this idea i do zazen no zazen does zazen and you just how do you say uh how would you say in english you, you succumb you, in a way it's it's, it's succumb Surrender. i mean a lot of yeah. teachers and a lot of practitioners probably feel it like this uh express it like this it, it's like succumbing to this activity of zazen doing zazen until then you try to master zen i master zen i master my life no you allow zen to master you you allow your life to master you and that's egoless practice and if you yeah, want yeah. to but you don't have to you can also call that satori but in that moment there's no need to call it satori label it as satori but it, when what you lose what you lose is this idea i do i want i grasp no no uh zazen does zazen zazen grasps you in a way the moment yeah. you let go you realize oh here i'm sitting on the hand of zazen yeah um and uh in in soto so for the soto zen is that um exclusively uh mahayana buddhism mm, i could imagine that different practitioners think about that in different ways i would say it's mahayana in that it's not about your own salvation only but it's about the salvation of yeah. every and even the last living being so even if you found think you found the answer you found nirvana in samsara as long as there's still one crying person that says says i need help you shouldn't go to rest uh your practice needs to continue on the other hand people have pointed out that in a way inside mahayana it's kind of also going back to the roots to the original buddhism which means well um rather than uh, talking a lot about salvation of all living beings and uh, making uh, different categories of bodhisattvas and uh, re reciting this sutra and that sutra let's get back to what the buddha did and what the buddha did was sitting under a tree so zen is that school in mahayana who emphasizes that a lot that well if buddha said how can we uh, excuse ourselves from sitting so let's start here but a difference from theravada is that that's a practice that you don't do only for your own salvation but you want to share with other others it's a communal uh practice and zazen is also not the end of the way when you get off the cushion in a way you could say that's where the real practice starts when you get back to your family when you get back to your job 
that's where the real practice starts. And that's probably something that maybe they wouldn't tell you in Theravada like that. In Theravada, it's more like get out of the game, quit the game, but then you don't <laughs> join again. Yeah, that, that's yeah, the Mahayana yeah. part is you join again. It's just that you have to play yeah. with different rules. And that's sometimes very hard because you lose, of course. And even as yeah, Savaki yeah. told you, losing is Satori. You don't want to lose all the time. You have to pay the rent at the end of the month. If I only lose, uh, how do I pay the rent? So that's kind of the koan, the Mahayana koan. You want to play the game and you it's not shouldn't, it's not supposed to be only about you, but you also have to pay the rent. Uh, but yeah. you also want to help others. So I would say, yes, uh, definitely Zazen is Mahayana, but it's a kind of back to the roots form of Mahayana, I would say. Yeah, and I, I don't want to imprint it too much media into this, but that's almost, uh, you know, like stepping out of the game and then going back in is very much like uh, the Matrix in a way, if you're, if people are into the Matrix films and, you know, uh, Neo, you know, comes out of the mm. Matrix and he goes back in to mm. help liberate people essentially mm, mm, um mm, mm. so that, that's an interesting you know they use those themes to to create the the film um yes. which i thought was interesting yes. um but uh also in 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 zen and soto zen there's no um like levels of awakening like they use in theravada like uh stream enter or mm, arhat mm. is there or no not that I yeah. ever heard of. Sometimes people ask yeah. me, so where are you? People from other traditions, are you a stream yeah, enter yeah, yet? Yeah. Or maybe already are, are a hunter? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I have no idea. I mean, the, this whole idea of kind of checking yourself where I yeah. am, is this stage one or two or three? I yeah. mean, that's what I call the game. Yeah. And people yeah. always... Uh, Count counting koans in Rinzai. I mean, of course, in Rinzai, they know it's not about counting the koans, but I did one year of Rinzai practice in a monastery in Kyoto. And then you, you start to do that. How many koans did I already solve? And how about the guy, my neighbor? Am I faster than him? So this whole kind of stages of enlightenment, uh, honestly, I think it's stupid because it just brings you back into the game, but not in the Mahayana sense. It's about how how many more steps do I need to get to our arahantship? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Who cares yeah. if you ever get an arahant or not? It's not about you. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what my, my teacher wanted to tell me when I did that noodle thing. That's not about you. It's not about, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not about your status of enlightenment. <laughs> Who's interested in that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. And I, you know, I actually, um, you know, reading through some of the book, uh, I, you know, it's it's really interesting to see uh, Kodosawaki's, um, the way he deals with all the different, um, like situations and and perspectives and and kind of different things. Actually, that is surprising. Like that, he had there's a lot of like everyday life stuff in there, you know, and it's really interesting to see his approach to to all that um is there um a chapter in there that really stands out to you or a few chapters in in the in the book to you that really stand out to uh, to you <laughs> mm. 
Um, probably in my case, in, in the center of the book, there's a number that uh, relate directly to Zazen and, and this idea, yeah, but I want Satori after all. And uh, Uchiyama in the epilogue, uh, Uchiyama is less of this kind of uh, hitting the hammer on the nail, but uh, Uchiyama is more kind of, he uses more words, but that can also be helpful. But Sawaki, he's uh, addressing this, I want my Satori attitude in a quite direct way. So in my case, probably it were especially those chapters related to Zazen and Satori that helped me a lot. And I could imagine that uh, people who have already several years of practice under their belt, uh, they might want to go to those chapters. But uh, somebody who's never done Zazen before, uh, they could start with chapter one. The first one uh, to you who's always worried about the eyes of the others. That's probably also something that's addressing a problem that we all have. What are the others thinking about me? Uh, yeah. Or... Yeah. And, um, you know, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, so, uh, you know, for people listening, uh, you know, where, where could they find the book? I'm going to have the link in the description, but just for people listening also on the podcast. Hmm. Where can they find the book? Um, I would hope that you can find it at the local bookstore, um, but uh, probably many bookstores don't have it, but uh, you could ask the, the, the bookkeeper to order it for you. can uh, for sure order it on the internet. Um, on YouTube, uh, you find me introducing uh, this book. You find uh, some quotes at the homepage of Antaiji. Uh, the temple Antaiji has a homepage and several of these quotes, or quite a lot of them. I would say maybe 10% of the whole book you can find online on the Antaiji homepage as well. So if you want to have an idea what it's about. And then I would say, if you don't want it, uh, to order it on the internet, go to your local bookstore and uh, help them to gain a little yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's also going to be on Amazon for, for people who hmm. just do everything through Amazon. It's, uh, you know, reality of our world. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, for for the listeners, the, the people watching this, um, do you have any any kind of parting words or words of advice? Words or advice? <laughs> any, any parting, parting words, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for watching anyway. I mean, if uh, people are still watching at this point, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a good read for them. Uh, so thank you for joining. Um, it was an honor to, to talk to you. And um, I've never been uh, to America to teach. Maybe it's going to happen at, at one point and we can see. I'm going to go to Europe uh, next year. But uh, yeah, it would be great. We could see uh, each other at one point in real life. And until then, I'm glad that you watched. Thank you. And uh, th thank you to, to you, James, for having me here and for this interview. Oh, for sure. For sure. Thank you so much. And yeah, I, I really hope you come to America. That'd be fantastic. 
um, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm sorry that I only came across your work just now, you know, through this book, because, uh, you know, you really have to seem to have a very deep understanding and, and a way of communicating the Dharma. So, you know, thank you uh, so much for everything that you do. Uh, you know, you, I know the, you know, the you and the ego, but, you know, for everything <laughs> that you, that, you know, it's ironic, right? And that's what I love yeah. about Zen is you have these paradoxes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, again, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And uh, it's greatly appreciated. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. Have All a right. good day. Take care. Or good night. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Bye.